Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast, where we are currently taking a trip through the John Grisham Cinematic Universe. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my best friend and the one man I'd fully trust to know my whereabouts if I was hiding away in a different country, Patch. Hey, everyone. And yes, that is my real name. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) But would you tell us if it wasn't or would you say, no, that's my real name? Just like you exactly did. <laughs> if it was for a different uh, newspaper, probably not. But for the Washington Herald, yes. If if Denzel okay. were interviewing, me, I'd be like, <laughs> yeah, that's it's it's me, man. It's me. Do we know if the Washington Herald is a thing? Because I, the, I was thinking the whole time about how isn't it the Washington Post? It's it's and, Wapo, course, I think, is what it's trying to represent. I think it's Wapo. Okay, I was gonna say, of course, mo- movies and you know books can have or, or actual actual cities can have multiple newspapers. So right. perhaps it was back in the 90s, who knows. But yeah, I just kept thinking every time he would say it, I was in my head, I would be like, Denzel, you're wrong. That's not where you work. You're you're saying it wrong. <laughs> you, you know, fix yourself. <laughs> don't tell don't tell Denzel he's wrong. That's not cool. That's true. That. Now, <laughs> if I was going to tell him he's wrong, this might be the only movie I would attempt it in because yeah, he seems, you know, yeah, this he is seems probably like the safest. Softer. <laughs> a softer one. Denzel in this one. And I yeah, would always when, when I watch this movie, I would always call him <laughs> Greg Grantham instead of Gray. It's not Greg, it's Gray Grantham. I know. And I would always think oh. he's pronouncing his name wrong. It's like it's gray. gray <laughs> I usually Grantham. like alliteration, it's but it the name anyway, it doesn't really fit his character. <laughs> Any who, if you haven't already listened to last week's episode on the firm, we encourage you to give that one a go for some context on why we are doing this. As of the time of this recording, both it and the Pelican Brief are both streaming on HBO Max. So go forth and watch or rewatch them and listen. Because there certainly will be spoilers, as always. And you have been warned. All right, Patrick, if I recall, you said that this was either the John Grisham movie that you liked the most or the John Grisham movie that you had seen the most. So I wanted to ask first off, like, which one of those is it? What, am I misremembering? Uh, and if so, what is it that has kind of elevated it to be whichever one of those things it is for you? So it's the first one I ever saw, and it became the one that I became really familiar with in terms of rewatch. My favorite at this point is The Rainmaker, and uh, when we talk about the the movie here in a few weeks, we'll discuss why. But this is one that I can watch several times, even with its lengthy runtime. And part of the reason why is because I think it really challenges me as a viewer to pay attention to everything. My dad and I have had this conversation on multiple occasions, mostly because we are getting older, him more than me, obviously, since he's my dad. But he will tell me when we talk about this movie, his experience walking into the theater, sitting down with his popcorn, his Coke, having the movie start, and then leaving at the moment when Thomas Callahan gets blown up and coming back and being completely, well, because he had to go to the bathroom. And oh. uh, no, he didn't just leave. Like, okay, this is too much for me. Let me just come back. <laughs> I was like, no, no, sorry, it wasn't that. But he left during that, pit- that pit- pivotal moment and he came back and was just completely confused. And he said it wasn't until 
it released on VHS when he was able to rent it, that he got the whole, oh, okay, okay. And I remember that story when he would tell it to me. I think this was one that I went to go see in the theater. This was 93, so I would have been probably 13 or 14. And I remember really enjoying it and being kind of overwhelmed by its complexity, which to me was kind of one of those things where I was like, this is challenging and I need to pay attention to more stuff. And I think it got me kind of hooked on that whole espionage spy, not just tell me everything, but show me, make these reveals. And even on a rewatch, this is a movie that that holds that even now, this great way of giving us a great setup. I watch it in relationship to the firm, and I'm curious as we go through these to see if John Grisham does the same thing, where he, in his stories, he'll give you a great setup, the aha moment in in the middle of the movie, and then the back half is solving the problem. So we did that with Mitch McDeer in the firm, realizes what's going on, and then the back half is the spy espionage action. This, I think, is a better executed back half than The Firm, for my taste. It feels more energetic. It feels more like it's action-based. It still has a lot of people in it, a lot of different groups, which it seems like that's characteristic of John Grisham's early stuff. But for me, watching this again, it continuously challenges me because I'll always forget about something. I'll always forget, oh, yeah, I forgot that they had to go see this person. Oh, and he's dead. Yep, that's right. And there are performances that I forget about that I'm always glad to revisit because I'm like, oh, yeah, didn't realize that, oh, yeah, Stanley Tucci doing his thing there. So it's one of these movies that as I watch it, as I get older, I appreciate more about it. But ultimately, what I enjoyed about it the first time, that discovery, that challenge of following the story with some of its complexities still holds its ground for me and makes it enjoyable. Well, that's good. I'm glad. And I definitely see the differences as well. I mean, I think that they're pretty stark, honestly, in the difference of what the firm and the Pelican brief are as far as where they slot into the legal thriller. And a big part of that is because of the directorial style, which the first film we talked about was made by Sydney and it is got this jazz kind of vibe to it with that piano score that happens all throughout. We discussed, you know, our feelings on that. This was made by Alan J. Pacula, who is a multiple Academy Award nominee himself and was probably most notable for directing what was dubbed the Paranoia Trilogy, which were All the President's Men, Clute, and the Parallax View. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the only one of those you've seen is All the President's Men. Correct. Yeah, I I have the Parallax View on a watch list that I because want to of get me. to when I have. Yeah, because of you. Yeah, Probably. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so I want to rewatch it, All the President's Men as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's an all-timer. And the Parallax View is phenomenal. And, and it really is the one that I thought about probably the most when I, well, it and All the President's Men combined when I was watching this because of the paranoid conspiracy energy that he brings to this throughout. And and when I say energy, I think that it's kind of sometimes not there in the same way as 
his strictly thriller based thrillers like the parallax view like it, it is always got a sense of foreboding hanging over it i do not feel that way with the pelican brief personally i feel like there are some lengthy sections of this where at least until the final the third act i would say the finale so everything from when they go to the bank vault to the deposit box on to me that's like the finale <laughs> and yep. and it's yep. kind of long right but like at that point the energy whoop it goes up and it just stays up all the way to the end you kind of ride it out but up until then you know it's kind of hit and miss on again off again for me uh and i didn't find it to be among his best as it comes to kind of creating that paranoid atmosphere i don't mm-hmm. know exactly what it is because I like most of the cast. I mean, this is a who's who, like we talked about before, and it seems to just be a reoccurring theme. Like, there are so many of... So on the Rewatchables podcast with Bill Simmons, they do these categories, right? And one of their categories, they call it the That Guy Award for each movie. And it's the person in the movie that you're always like, who? It's it's that guy. It's that guy. Like, you know, you never hardly remember his name, but you recognize him and you think he's in every single movie and there there's probably like six candidates in this movie there's a uh james b sicking is in this movie i had no idea what his name was but i was like oh i it's him like i of course like i love that guy like i that is a, a perfect example of how this film goes and so i think it kind of gets by a lot on the fact that in every scene there's someone i recognize for me personally, and I don't have to feel the constant paranoia, but for me, it feels more like a procedural than it does a thriller for the majority of the runtime. I just wondered, you know, am I alone in that? Do you? Because it it sounds to me like you get much more of the thriller element out of it, just from what you were saying there earlier. No, it's really more mystery stuff than anything else. Like I never mm. felt as Mystery, though yeah. I watch Darby as she's looking around and the camera sort of jolts between one person to another. I mean, there were parts of it that felt a little, at the time, probably cutting edge. Now it feels a little cliche where you have cut-ins to just different characters who are looking away or looking somewhat suspicious. We saw this in The Firm as well. And this feels more energetic, so I think it works better for me, but it still feels a little dated because I never feel like she's being watched by everybody. There's a scene that I really enjoyed. It's with her in the elevator, and there is a guy in there that's watching her, but there's this tension, and it's this I think it's the claustrophobia of being in that elevator. Elevators are awkward anyway when you're hanging out with people that you don't know, and when there's 20 floors that you have to go through, not that you're stopping on all of them, but you have to go down from the 20th to like the first. That felt a little tension. I felt tension there. But overall, it just felt more like mystery, like just trying to solve the problem. The only moment, and you brought this up, was the second potential car bomb with the chase in the in the parking garage. I mean, that felt somewhat suspenseful, but it felt 90 suspenseful. This was not something where I ever felt in 2022 that I was like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? It just felt like fun action sequences. But it felt grounded. It felt like we weren't getting big Michael Bay explosions like we didn't need to. Um, I noticed this time around that 
I I had I'd forgotten that we got to see the car bomb being put in the car. Like I remembered that the bomb was put in and that you had Grantham starting the car and Darby saying, Nope, let's get out. But I forgot that it was actually there was actually a whole sequence where the guy was putting it in. And I almost felt like that was wasted because I knew you have a guy who opens up the door. I didn't need to see the whole scene play out where he grabs the thing, puts it in there, and then somehow magically without looking is like putting the little wires together like he's making it work. I mean, this isn't a time to kill, okay? Or this isn't, um, this is not, I didn't believe that. I didn't believe that that was, but whatever. So for me, when I'm watching this movie play out, I felt like the energy did amp up in that third third half, in that third act, but I also felt as though, like The Firm, there were a lot of moving pieces. And in some ways, I felt like we needed to have like color-coded vests to let me know, are we talking about Matisse's people? Are we talking about the CIA? Are we talking about the FBI? Like, who's going after her? That kind of lowered the suspense level because I'm like, I get that anybody could be after you. But if I don't know who the bad guys are, if I don't know who I'm supposed to be like rooting for... It's hard for me to feel like I feel paranoia, but I feel more confusion than anything else. So that's kind of what I felt leaving this viewing was that, okay, a lot of people are after Darby and hopefully she gets away. So I don't know who to trust and neither does she, but that's, it's just a little, it's a little confusing for me to not, I need somebody to trust. And I guess Gray's the one that we should. That's a great point because I felt the same sort of confusion and I actually, turned to my son who was watching it with me for the first time and I asked him at one point I said who do you think these guys are towards the end during that climax and he said I don't even know the FBI maybe and I was like you think the FBI is the bad guy and he was like everybody is the bad guy the president is the bad guy the FBI is a bad guy the CIA is a bad guy the lawyers are a bad guy the oil guy is a bad guy only the curly haired girl and Denzel aren't bad guys (laughs) And I was like, well, you're not wrong. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you get to the point where you are watching all of this play out and you kind of are confused. So during the uh, final like monologue section where they're actually explaining who did what, I guess, or, I don't know, they're clarifying some things, names get thrown out there. And I didn't know who these people were. I had to Google because I was like, wait, who is this guy? At one, I forget who it was, but somebody was talking about the person that shot Kamal when he was with Darby and the dude in the hat. That's how I knew him at the, yeah, he was yeah. just wearing, he was wearing a hat and that's all I knew who he was. But like I did, yeah, you didn't know names. You didn't know. And so then when they would use names without you knowing these people per their name, it just got really kind of a little bit too much of a mystery there. There's too many pieces, not well defined. I like the idea of it. And I, I like the aspect of the proceduralness of it, which is what I find to be funny because I enjoy the idea of journalism and trying to get the story and trying to solve the mystery. What I found hilarious about that was, does that really make this a legal thriller? Like we kind of joked a little bit about how Tom Cruise and we were we actually talked through why tax law mattered and like why it was a part of the firm. And how he, as a lawyer, why did that need to be an integral part of the film, right? This is 
even less so. And and I had totally forgotten that, right? I in my memory in my in this nostalgic bubble of John Grisham memories, every single protagonist is like I don't know, Atticus Finch to me in my head. Like they're all like right, these right. incredible lawyers who do massive things on the law on the stand in a courtroom of law and they're like winning cases. Darby is banging her professor, right? You know, and he and, and all she does is she does some research in a law library, which is a really cool setting, by the way. I love seeing people do things in law libraries and studying them. They look gorgeous and beautiful. Uh, I don't know if they still are these days or if people just use the internet from their bedrooms. But anyway, she goes and she does all this stuff, but it's all behind the scenes. And she just shows up one day and she's like, yeah, I, I think I figured it out. And this is like in the first, I don't know, 20 minutes, 15 minutes of the movie. She's just like, yeah, I, got, I, I don't know. Here's here's what I think happened. And then we're off to the races. And, and there's no real aspect in this to me of her needing to be a lawyer. It is more like she is a journalist to me. I almost felt like it was almost more like, you know, spotlight, but with the FBI or the CIA after you, the way yeah. that they're trying to get the story. And I, I just, I, mm -hmm. I didn't, I don't dislike it per se, like because of that. And I enjoy the movie. I, I just, yeah, I just found it kind of surprising that. Did you feel cheated at she, the fact that kind of, yeah, because she's not even a yeah. lawyer, dude. She's in school. She yeah. hasn't even, she doesn't even become a lawyer by the end of the movie. She's in another country, like on a beach, sipping yeah. out of, you know, coconuts. <laughs> Which is not a bad plan B, in you know, my opinion. But I, I agree with you in, in that regard. And if we had to make some kind of connection, I think the fact that we were dealing with Supreme Court justices and that kind of Definitely. legality, I think that <laughs> that's sort of the tie-in. But you're right. If we're going to look at John Grisham, I think we'd have to say it's the law. Uh, change that and say it's legal or not. <laughs> because, yeah, I actually, I think we talked about this last time that the the movies that I gravitate towards are the ones that are the courtroom dramas. I love mm -hmm. the chess Me match. too. And these first two movies have nothing to do with chess matches. They hint at lawyership. They hint at law. But they are mechanisms by which we create some kind of mystery thriller. And so I don't think that's bad, but I think in some ways, if the thing that's drawing you towards a movie, particularly if you like John Grisham, you have to include that stuff as part of the crux. You have to say, hey, what's the hook here? Is it a legal hook? Well, then you have to kind of be in love with Supreme Court justice stuff. And you have to be in love with motions and suing and apparently pelicans in this regard. In fact, the thing that stands out to me every time I watch it is that I, even after watching this multiple times, the good and bad part about this movie for me is that I'm utterly confused until Darby explains to Gray the brief, because that's the thing. Right. We're getting all the different stuff around. Have you read the brief? Yes. Have you sent it up to the FBI? Why are we stopping this? And oh, who's this guy named Matisse? And then we get the big aha moment in the hotel room where we listen back to his conversation with her over the tape recorder. But even then, I'm like, wait a minute. Who? Wait, so two lawyers were trying to do this because they love this this waterfowl and and apparently PBS makes people mad. And, and so it's really by the time there's actually not that discussion or not that conversation, but there's a conversation later 
where it is actually summed up a little bit better. So I feel like what the movie does is it gets us kind of like the slow burn of like hint, 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 hint. And then it gives us an explanation, but it's not quite. And then it gives us like, okay, if you're still not getting it, here's the summary statement. And then that happens just before the third act. So I feel like if I'm being cheated, it's a it's a really subtle cheat because I'm like, well, I guess it's law stuff. I don't know about Supreme Court justices and motions and stuff being held up in, you know, for 15, 16 years or, or whatever. So I'm just going to trust Darby that she knows because, you know, apparently she knows a lot. And uh, I kind of suspend my disbelief at that point. So I think it feels more like a soft thriller, a soft mystery. I would love for it to be more complex and use some of that law stuff, but I can see why they didn't go so deep into that. Well, I think that that's part of what makes Pacula the choice here when they were going to go cast the director to or pick the director to make the film because of specifically like Clute and the Parallax View and and all the present spin. I mean, there's it's such a mashup of those movies. When you watch the Parallax View, you're going to look back and I think about, about this and you're going to go, wow, because it's about this overarching government conspiracy. And to me, this feels like that. It's less than about the law, right? It's more about the fact that you have a president who is taking these gigantic campaign contributions from this guy, and he doesn't want to lose them. And in a moment of weakness, he he doesn't seemingly plan out like in the beginning, come off as like a bad president. You know, he from all in that we know of him, he's had a good run, he's well-liked, etc., but he comes up against this situation where it's put forth that if this comes out, you know, it's going to come crumbling down for you. And it may be of none of his fault, right? Like, it's not like he tried to get the, super, the Supreme Court justices assassinated. He's not a bad guy in the sense that he is intentionally trying to manipulate things in the beginning to get a leg up. But what happens is he ends up in this situation where now he has to protect himself. And then he starts making decisions in order to ensure that he can stay in power at all costs. And this cover up, you know, happens. And so if, if anybody's really running the show here, it's the Matisse guy, right? Which it always comes back to the people with the money who want to make the money and the film having this whole like even when it first started, Patrick, and I had kind of forgotten about the the beginning of it being the Supreme Court justice assassinations. I was just immediately going, wow, is this far fetched? Because I think it's supposed to be kind of a little bit out there. Or is this just the way the world is? Because if you think about the way politics have gone the last, you know, four, eight years or so, to me, this feels like it could happen tomorrow and I I wouldn't blink. That doesn't mean I wouldn't have empathy, but it means that I wouldn't even question at all or be surprised. Not would would just be like, well, not even at all shocked that whichever side, whether it's the liberal or the conservative side, decided to knock off a couple justices to ensure that they could get control of the court before their candidate left office. Like it is a entirely believable plot line to me. I, I don't know about hiring a terrorist from the Middle East that is actually played by Stanley Tucci. I don't know. I, like Some of it's kind of funny, but it just felt very relevant to me in a way that uh, surprised me. 
Well, I think the the plan is very sound. I think it feels very grounded. Like, okay, if we were going to do this, if it were possible to do this, then this would be what we would do. Because politics is another chess game where you get the right people in office. If we look at how something like Roe v. Wade went down, you had a predominantly conservative set of Supreme Court justices. So there was a high likelihood that if that ever came to be, you would have that. So let's put that not go into detail about Roe v. Wade by any means, but let's use that. If you were going to try to manipulate that, what would you do? Well, you'd try to off the older Supreme Court justices that were conservative. That would be what you do. Get somebody in office quickly or get a get a nomination done quickly so that you could then change the game as it were. And so I think you're absolutely right. The Maybe not the method, but the intent is there because the fact is politics are all about how you can manipulate. How can you convey a message in order to persuade a voter to vote for someone? That's why these slam campaigns and slam ads for opposing candidates are so popular and why somebody says, I promise to do this. You're just kind of going, whatever. You promise to do what? Excuse me? And I think that that's sort of played with here in regard to this story because you have a president who isn't a nincompoop, but he doesn't realize how little control he actually has. And I think he doesn't realize how strong a tie to money is to a person that if I have the money, I can control the campaign. You absolutely can because now a person who is president is actually a puppet. And I think early on, there's a great line. I can't remember who says it, but when it's referred to as when, when the president's referred to, I think it's, um, Oh, who was it? I believe it was, uh, his counterpart, his chief of staff, um, I said Cole. And when it's referred to the president, they're like, which one? Because it's sort of internally recognized that Cole calls the shots. Like he's the one making the decisions. And later on in the movie, he he's revealing to the president that, Hey, this Pelican brief thing is not going away. And he's like, well, what do we need to do about it? And he goes, you don't want to know. And that's his way of saying, look, plausible deniability, sir. This is how it's going to roll down. And I think that speaks to maybe a perception that the president as an office or as a person is not really the power. It's really the people underneath him or the people that control the House or the Senate or the cabinet. He's just a figurehead. And I know that there's some criticism, a lot of criticism about President Biden, that he's just a puppet where somebody else or a group of people are actually controlling him in some way. Believe that or not, but I think it's compelling because politics allows for that kind of control and that kind of puppetry to actually happen if the price is right and if the money's there. I mean, we see that. Campaign campaign, uh, donations help drive the popularity of a candidate. And I think that's played out really well in this movie that it's an important thing. In fact, uh, Cole doesn't deny it when he's approached by Grantham at the end and he says, yeah, Matisse, uh, I think he contributed $4 million. Yep. 4.2 million to be exact all through legal funds. I mean, he doesn't deny the fact that he's done this, but Gray takes it one step further and says, yeah. And because of that, he actually has gotten some controlling power there. So I, I think you're right that this doesn't seem so far fetched. It does feel a little 
out there because of some of the actions that are taken and, and really because of all the players involved. But yeah, I think if you were to redo this or to kind of repackage it in a tighter way, it would feel more like a uh, contagion <laughs> compared in That's spite good, of yeah. COVID-19. Yeah. Did you think that Cole was going to kill himself when he walked into the room with the monitoring? Because I was like, oh, he's going to he's gonna off himself. So I told Tyler. And I was actually surprised when the next shot was him walking in on camera and whispering and telling the president what had happened. I 100% was convinced. And I've seen this movie, but I just have forgotten it. It's not one that that sticks for me that way. And so I was just like, I just know he's going to. He's going to shoot himself. The way he walks in there and he looks at that monitoring system in the Oval Office, he sees the president playing with the dog, and it was just, it felt like such a great setup for that and the acknowledgement of it's all over, it's all coming crumbling down, like I'm, I, my life is done, you know. Uh, I feel like maybe today's cynical world, that would be what happened in the movie versus yeah. at least in the nineties, we were maybe a little more hopeful that he would just resign <laughs> and then that would be all and it'd be okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think in that this is a testament to Tony Goldwyn. I mean, he has a performance. He feels like a guy who, if he's playing an antagonist at the end of the movie, he's just going to off himself. Something similar happens in ghost spoilers uh, with his character. But if, if he's going to play somebody nefarious, <laughs> It's probably going to end uh, not so well for him, and I I, I, I absolutely thought that was going to happen. The way the camera cut, and I was like, "Oh gosh, he's going to." When he wa- and when he walks into the Oval Office, I'm like, "Is he going to shoot himself?" Is he going to kill the, the president? president? Yeah. Oh my <laughs> gosh! Like, was like, we, I was like, "Do I? How do I forget? I forget this happened?" That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a way to cause trauma not only to yourself but pretty much the entire White House at that point. <laughs> Too funny. What did you think about Julia and Denzel's performances? Uh, I will tell you that I thought this was such a sleepy role for both of them in a lot of ways. I don't remember where this falls in Julia's career as far as what she'd done before this. Had she kind of locked into that superstardom period that she had there in the 90s and early 2000s, I guess it was. It was she she grew on me throughout, I think, because she comes off as when she's trying. I should say this when she's trying to play the just 24 year old green law student who is in shock and all of that. I didn't buy it at all. Like when she's fake crying for Callahan and thing, like I just none of that really worked for me very well. It felt incredibly forced and almost overacted to the point where. I just thought, I don't know what her actual age was when she shot this, but I felt like she was an older woman who was more mature, who was smarter than that. And she just seemed to be making choices that were supposed to align with a really terrified young child and just didn't work for me. But about midway through, once she gains the confidence that she is able to use to get to the end and solve the mystery with Gray, and she starts doing things like saying, you know, I'm not going to tell you where I'm at. I'm going to, I'm going to trick you. Um, and I'm going to, you know, make sure that, you know, I do this the safe way. When she starts making those kind of decisions, I felt like she really kicked in and she did a good job. And then Denzel, like I'd mentioned, like, it's just such a weird role for me, uh, from him because I'm so used to this level of energy, this level of charisma. And 
he doesn't have that. He doesn't feel like a leading man to me in this film. Part of it is his outfit, like these baggy jeans and like this kind of like Lucy <laughs> shirt. I don't know, man. It just yeah. felt, it's very 90s, but it just didn't feel like the Denzel that I know. And so while he was fine, I, I just, nothing really stuck out to me. And I was curious if anybody kind of blew you away at all. Well, I would agree that watching those two on screen, I think they had good chemistry. And I, so I watched this this time and I, of course, do the trivia. In my past viewings, I always think, oh, they're going to get together. You know, there's the scene in the hotel room where she asks him to stay in the next room. And I'm like, oh my gosh, are they going to end up in bed together? And I didn't ever think that was appropriate because she's dealing with like some crazy stuff. I love the, the, how reserved he is, how he keeps it professional, how he wants to solve the problem. And later on when he is in the cabin and she comes to him and he says, why don't you stay here? She goes, no, I want to come with you. And they have this kind of mutual understanding that he wants to protect her. He, he She's no longer a source to him. She's actually a friend. And then they go through that whole sequence at the university where they're tracking down all these, you know, the, the, the folks so when I watch them together, I think they have really good chemistry for the roles that they're in. And I agree. I think Denzel is a powerful dude, a powerful actor. Like all of his roles feel like very, you know, fist aggressive, not loud, but just very energetic, very strong. And what you have is, you know, you the word you use is perfect, sleepy, where he's coming down. And it's like these, I almost... My favorite shots of him are the ones that are not appropriate for his, him as an actor. And it's these little tight shots with him on the phone talking to Garcia and writing stuff down. I love the little things like that where he's you know penciling stuff in and underlining and where are you at? And it's just very quiet. And there's no real like urgency, but there is an energy that feels appropriate for this movie. Like I think if you had Denzel, like we know him, that energy would be too much for this movie. Like, I think he would overpower the movie and he would feel less like a reporter and more like a body man trying to go after some dude, you know, tracking some dude down and beating him to a pulp. But I think that the role that he plays and alongside Julia Roberts as Darby Shaw works. And I will say that she feels more believable in the back half where she's able to strategically put him in certain places and, you know, use cash instead of credit cards. She grew up a lot, obviously in the movie. It felt a little too quick for me. Like I felt like had I not seen her and Sam Shepard in a classroom together, I would have felt like they were, you know, a legit couple. Like he wasn't sleeping with the student. It wouldn't feel slightly inappropriate and gross. And so, you know, if if you'd set this up where she wasn't a student, where she was maybe a, a colleague, you know, another professor, that would have felt more believable because even if he had died, they'd still have that good intimate relationship, but she would have felt older to me, not like a, you know, a co a co-ed. <laughs> it's just like he's falling in love with her brain and other things too. So um, in, in terms of standout, Stanley Tucci really stands out to me. And I think it's because of the personas that he puts on in the first probably 15 minutes as he goes through the assassinations. I love the way he changes his voice. He gets the, the envelope goes in and you can hear his yeah. slightly slightly uh you know foreign accent and then he 
picks up the phone. He's like, yeah, I'd like to order uh, you know, air, uh, room service, eggs. And he doesn't talk like Truman or, or uh, President Carter or anything, but he definitely has an American accent. And then even when he's trying to uh, imitate John Hurd, Gavin uh, Verheek, he hears the, the voicemail or the conversation and you can almost hear him adjust his voice. I think it's really cool. I love that kind of stuff. By the way, I, I referred to uh, it was a time to kill. I meant in the line of fire, Mitch Leary, the character from in the line of fire when it came to like it's very different that. when. <laughs> yeah, sorry. My bad. In that same vein, he reminds me of Mitch Leary in his ability to sort of blend in with the crowd, his ability to adjust to the environment he's in, which is kind of gross when he's able to uh, kind of blend in to the uh, the uh, the the homosexual like theater <laughs> and do his uh, his second killing. Those parts for me were really awkward and scary because he has no soul. Like he is just a hitman who has no limitations, no boundaries. And I thought that performance was pretty fantastic. So when he gets offed, when he gets killed the way he does, I'm like, what? He should last longer than that. Like he's a, I, I would expect a chase at least before he eventually gets gunned down, but he just gets taken out by random dude that we've seen that, twice. Exactly. That's what I'm getting yeah. at. It's random dude. It's like not even a person we're attached to. And yet we're attached to him because of like how terrifying when he shows up and he's like walking with her, holding her hand. Like that is that's when Pacula is at his best is the tension there, right? When you are like, oh my gosh, we know who he's with. She's with. She has no idea. Or when he's doing those killings in the beginning, like this, that's Pacula, man. He can shoot the crap out of some tension like that, where that scene in the theater, the way it's framed, it's just so good as, as far as like, scary terrifying you don't even see the actual murders occur you don't see the first hit actually you may not see any of them except for the final one which gave my son a jump scare i thought that was hilarious in the pelican brief of all movies he like jumped on the couch because the like blood splatted out if you remember when he got shot or whatever so uh, it's yeah no i agree i thought that the performance by him of genuinely creating this fear of a blended in assassin who is just offing people, but by very simplistic, careful means, not flashy, not public, you know, like we think of John Wick as our assassin now, right? Because he's a killer, he's skilled, but he's like killing hundreds of people in public places at the same time. Like that's very different than carefully planning out and executing a singular hit like Stanley Tucci does several times. So yeah, I agree. I also like Lithgow as the editor. I think he yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a real small kind of role. Again, with me not remembering this movie well, it almost serves as a blessing at times because I was like, is he in on it? Is he going to sell Gray out? Do I trust him? Because he's asking all these questions. And, and, by the, and maybe that's a testament to what the movie is creating for me that I'm not even really fully acknowledging while I'm watching it is that it's got me to the point where I'm wondering and is, is everybody a suspect? Do I, can I trust anybody? And that's the whole point, right? Is this guy is seemingly the sweetest, nicest, like good old editor and Gray is trusting him, but is that going to come back to bite him in the butt? Because in reality, everybody's just a Swedish bank account full of money away from turning on their friends no, and family. He, 
No, I, I think I think I love John Lithgow in this, and I think that he is completely trustworthy because of the fact that he wants to send Gray to Little Rock to do another story. This is the I second movie that. in two I weeks know. where we've That's got an Arkansas reference. I don't think we're going to get this a lot, but I just got to say, you can trust somebody who tells you to go to Little Rock. And I would be curious, where would Gray Grantham eat in Little Rock? That would be a big question. I would have several recommendations in 1993 for him to go. There's Doe's Eat Place, President Clinton. Regular spot for him. I would say go there, Gray. And you'd probably find some good sources at that restaurant. There we go. So yeah, you can definitely trust him. That's great. I'm glad that you had to throw that in there. <laughs> he, I mean, John, John Grisham has strong ties. Like He has family members yeah. uh, throughout Arkansas, and that's sure. you know, part of why it features... In all, all the South does, you know, whether it's all of his movies are going to be heavy in Tennessee, Memphis, or ten, that is ten, Memphis is Tennessee, Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Louisiana. Yeah. And uh, yeah, even into Georgia, I believe. But so uh, anything I'm missing? Is there a favorite sequence? For me, the other thing is just that we kind of briefly talked about, but like that whole escape is a mixed bag. I like the energy going up because I really am struggling at that point. Sometimes in the movie, I needed more consistently high thriller aspect for my liking, but I liked that whole sequence a lot. And I love that it ends with the accidental driving into your own bomb uh, method. That was just, that's hilarious. The, there are so many kind of like accidental escapes and those are always hit and miss for me as far as enjoying them because logic in my brain takes over and I'm like oh this female that's chasing them has them dead to rights like she sees them in a mirror they're they're toast right and the only way they get out of that is because some random dog barks next to her completely lucky right moment Uh, but the way that it's shot at the beginning of that scene when she walks in I just this is Pacula I just gotta give it to Pacula because we have Julia Roberts sitting at the desk talking to the lady at the bank deposit, and she's giving all of the information. She's putting on her acting display as the guy's wife, and we see from her perspective. So we see the lady at the desk look above her eye line, obviously seeing something behind her, but we as an audience don't know what it is yet, and that, because we know what she's doing, creates an immediate tension in me because I'm like, oh what's behind her who's behind her and then we see that it's just some other woman but the way that it looks and works out and you kind of like is that person following her is that person tracking her and it just continues and continues until she ends up being the one to chase them when she starts chasing them i don't really buy her as like (laughs) whatever elite agent team that is supposedly (laughs) trying to track down and kill darby shaw but up until that point i just like the way that it's shot uh, a lot yeah, I think for me, because the movie is really because it centers on Darby and Gray, the sequence that I like is them trying to track down Garcia and going through the various names of the law students that clerked at the the law office. I especially like, in particular, I like how late in the movie, Darby Shaw has the ability to just bla- just blatantly lie and lie so convincingly. So there's a scene where she's talking to the kid who was uh, was committed 
to the mental institution. She snuck in, great little sequence there with with Gray having to call the supervisor and distracting him. And she she talks to to the kid, gets the guy's name, or at least his last name. And then as she's leaving, the orderly says, Hey, what are you doing here? And she goes, I'm visiting my brother. And the kid walks out and he's like, Is this your sister? And he says, Yeah. And you know, leave her alone. And then she goes, I'll tell mom, uh, you'll see her this weekend. And he goes, thanks, sis. And she goes, take care. And you can tell that she's speaking to him, not playing a part necessarily, but she's convincing enough that she's both showing the orderly that she's his sister. And I feel like there's a moment there, not romantic by any means, but just that she cares deeply and that she, she's like, I need to protect this guy. She does the same thing in that scene you're talking about where she's given her all that information without even hesitating. The name of the, you know, the address, the phone number, her name, the social security number. She goes, oh, yeah, let me get it. And then she just very, and she smiles. I mean, she's so good at this. And it makes me wonder, that's the inconsistently we have from the first half of the movie because she's not insecure, but she's very, she's depicted as very green. Like this isn't, she's a law student. And while we know that she's smart, this is street smarts at this point. So I like how she's growing up here. I like her performance in this back half. And those particular sequences really stood out to me because it showed how, look, I'd believe her. You know, if I'd never met this woman, you know, if I'd never met Garcia's or Charles Morgan's wife, I would have believed this was her because of the way in which she didn't hesitate. Same thing in that, in the, um, the mental patient's room. I thought both of those were really great moments. Yeah, totally fair. I little mixed feelings on the, kid thing i love the idea of it i mm-hmm. logic gets me every time when she's in that hallway she's like oh i'm his sister and for anytime a character does this they come out and they get asked that question and then there's like this pause for dramatic effect to yeah. like <laughs> you kind of give it away the moment. And i'm like <laughs> okay if she's your sister you wouldn't pause there's no like i gotta think about this and then respond to it it's instantaneous right and so that would just make me more suspicious if I was, if this was happening to me and I was the one suspicious in the first place. But yeah, I do think that that's a, it works out pretty sweet. I, I do. I, I'm trying to remember if there's more in the book about it because I feel like that's such a section that I, I don't want the movie to be longer. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but <Right. laughs> it's so quick and it kind of gives him this this whole backstory of like, oh, he's here, he's this law student, he's, you know, in rehab or he's here for depression issues and and such. And maybe he needs, I needed more to believe that just some random woman walking in and needing information from him was going to give him this big boost that he needs on a personal level. He hasn't really done anything to be proud of. Honestly, sure. in my opinion, it's a weird thing. She was, a, I get she was a good hallucination for him, though. But that's, that's the point. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. we're, but it, yeah, if we can distill it down to the basic level, if Julia Roberts walked into my room right now, I would probably not have to worry about needing logic or, you know, I would react very similarly and I would be willing to call her yeah. whatever she wanted me to call her, whether yeah. that's sis or mom or whatever. Yeah. I'd like to throw some love at James Horner the uh, composer for this movie. This was not one of his best, not one of my favorites by, by far, but I really kind of cut my teeth on James Horner in terms of just getting familiar with appreciating scores before Hans Zimmer sort of took the top spot 
Horner was the guy. And I would listen to pretty much anything he would compose, even without seeing the movie. This is probably what re-influenced my wanting to watch this movie or having it high on my rewatch list is because he does the music. It's different than what I'm used to hearing in other soundtracks like Fields of Dreams, but or even Titanic to an extent. But this is early James Horner that um, I remember appreciating his stuff uh, early for you know my music love, <laughs> and so I'm I'm glad that he was on the uh, the the crew for for doing this one. All right, well that will do it for us on this edition of Feelin' Film. Thank you for hanging with us. Next week, The Client is on our docket, and we hope you join us for that as we continue our John Grishamverse journey. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.